You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast with the hosts old enough to remember this song and movie being popular, and not in a hipster, ironic type of way. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reason I was working for. You better not. Hello and welcome to another P.O. at your boss episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is a podcast covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two bestest Green Lanterns residing in what was then DC continuity. But this week we're not going to take a look at either Guy or Kyle. This week we're going to finish up the story arc of Green Lantern John Stewart and the story that led to the Mosaic title of the 1990s. Yes, it's part 4-4 of the Green Lantern story Mosaic. This is the end of the story that's going to solidify John's character throughout the rest of the 90s as the introspective problem-solving Green Lantern, as opposed to the sort of brash hot-headedness of Guy, the cool confidence of Hal, and later on, the unwillingness and uncertainty of Kyle. It's a great final issue that I'm certain you realize will lead into the Green Lantern Mosaic title, where John will have to deal with the denizens of these alien cities in his own comic book. But segueing along to the mail, I actually got another mail from Professor Allen at the Just One of the Guys podcast at gmail.com. He writes in to confirm that, yes, it was I who left you iTunes feedback, and I've also written emails to a few other podcasts, including those guys with the funny accents who talk about Dr. Doom and his four greatest enemies. <laughs> Not the typical way I'd figure someone would talk about the Fantastic Four, but it works. He also says, anyway, it seemed like you wanted some feedback, too, so here's some feedback. Well, thank you, Professor Allen. You're an awesome writer, and I'm glad to have you as a listener. And speaking of listening, why don't you listen to some of these great promos for some podcasts that I love, and then when we get back, we'll start on our coverage of issue number 17 of Green Lantern. Just once, in a lifetime, does a podcast come along that pushes the boundaries of the medium, that redefines what it is to be an internet radio broadcast, that touches us, reaches into us, inspires us, teaches us, that causes us to re-examine just who we are and why we are that expands our horizons, that makes us completely rethink our destiny in this cosmos and our place in the grand design. Just once in a lifetime. But while we're all waiting for that podcast to be invented, why not give a listen to Hey Kids Comics? 
Hey Kids Comics is a smart, fresh, and hilarious podcast that looks at all kinds of fun and interesting topics related to the ever-evolving world of the comic book art form. You can find Hey Kids Comics at aplayland.podomatic.com. That's Hey Kids Comics. Sorry. The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era. Filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword bite. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Fuck Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us.
In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com And welcome back. I'd like to mention that a couple of podcasts I just promote, effectively Pat Smash and Superman and the Bronze Age, have both been on hiatus for a while. But they both have promised to come back this summer, and in fact... Lee Busby, Michael Bailey, and J. David Weeder have gotten together and recorded a few episodes of Pat Smash, where they talked about the Incredible Hulk original movie, the one with Lou Ferrigno and Bill Bixby, and about the Incredible Hulk 2, The Avengers. Well, technically it's just The Avengers, but they felt The Incredible Hulk stole the show. So, go listen to that podcast. And Charlie Niemeyer has been, well, showcasing other Superman podcasts out there. Recently he's done Golden Age, I think he did Golden Age, he did From Crisis to Crisis, and he did the Superman Fan, fan Podcast. So, if you're missing those uh, podcasts, they should be coming back soon with new episodes sometime this summer. But, let's go ahead and get ready for this podcast and the review of Green Lantern number 17. Green Lantern number 17 was cover dated October 1991. The cover price was $1 U.S., $1.25 Canada, and 50 pence U.K. The title this time around was Sculptures. The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was M.D. Bright, inker was Romeo Tangal, colorist this time was Matt Hollingsworth, letterer was Albert Guzman, and associate editor Kevin Dooley, editor Andy Helfer. Our story opens with Moses Rockwell and the rest of the angry mob of humans attacking, with dynamite, the mountainous walls John has erected between the transplanted cities. As John monologues on how the turmoil going on on Oa parallels the turmoil going on inside him, Hot Widow Mom Rose hopes the message she sent to the Horde was received, and in turn, it gets to the Green Lantern. Meanwhile, John Stewart is trying to silence the voice of the old-timer ringing in his head. The old-timer brings up feelings of loss over Katma and inferiority over Hal, but John blocks it out and heads back to his apartment to regroup. As he enters, he sees the body of the burned horde alien still lying in a coma. But just as John dismisses the injured alien, the horde member comes back to life trying to communicate with John. In a raspy, uncertain voice, the red-skinned alien tells John to see Rose. Back at the farmhouse, Rose and Ibrahim wonder if their message got through, which, after the sudden appearance of Jon Stewart, they know it did. 
Rose says that Moses will try and kill as many aliens as he can, and only John can stop him. John residently agrees, to which Rose yells that John's gone insane. John agrees again, wondering if the insanity out there is a manifestation of the turmoil going on within him. The group pleads with John to make a compromise with the aliens, but John keeps bringing up his past sins, and how this is his way to atone for them. Rose just wants him to do something, and do it now. And as Rose makes her plea to John, a thunderous explosion takes down the wall between Hope Springs and the Zudarian city, allowing Moses and his people to lead an attack on Tomar II's neighbors. But the mob doesn't stop there. It powers through to engage other races, including killing the parent of one of the crystalline entities. But before the mob can gun down the child, a beam of green energy surrounds the polyhedral youth, saving him from the gunshot blast. Green Lantern Chase Lon has arrived, with Hal Jordan and Brick not far behind, and he is ready to kill. But Hal tells him to contain the attackers until he can find John and the Guardians and discover what is going on. Hal flies off and sees the Zudarians, the people of Hope Springs, fighting, and decides to use his ring to put both sides to sleep. John sees Hal's decisive action and wonders why he has lived in his shadow all this time. Why he spent all his life waiting for a great white hero to make the people stop fighting. Why he has failed to act when he knew he should have. Realizing that overthinking is getting him nowhere, John finally takes action flying into the air and stopping conflicts between the Shugs and the Water Beings. But before John can get more done, Hal grabs him and asks him what is going on. John says he's going to correct the problem he started, and Hal can either help him or get the hell off his planet. Initially shocked, Hal realizes that John has finally got things right with himself, and the Lanterns begin to break up the fights among the races. Hal, Brick, and Chaselon stop the major skirmishes, while John rounds up the leaders that were sowing the seeds of hatred and locks them together in a science cell. John says that he'll find any of the others like Moses and place them here as well, screaming that there will be more like him as long as the Guardians refuse to send people home. Moses taunts John, saying he's unwilling to fight or to kill to get things done. John proves Moses wrong by firing a ring construct spear right by Moses' face, saying that he's making the rules now. Leaving the science cell, John meets up with Hal, who informs him that the fighting is dying down. John is pleased, but he knows he's going to need more than just a cessation of hostilities. He needs to bring these aliens together, and the one person who was working on that was Hot Widow Mom Rose. John tells Rose that he will work with her, and the friendly leaders of the aliens to try and bring peace to the planet. Rose just wonders when they'll actually be able to go to their home planets, and John says he's going to confront the Guardians to find out. In the Guardians' chambers, John questions the little blue imps to whether or not they will start sending the cities home. The Guardians still claim that they do not have enough power, and John calls their bluff. He says that they're using more power to keep them here than it would take to send each of them home. He also claims this is all some sort of grand experiment, to which the Guardians reply, Yes. 
saying that this is a great opportunity to study how species clash and come together, and what they were doing is for the greater good. The greater good. The Guardians told John that he can either accept the privilege that the Guardians have allowed him to take up, or walk away and let the races fend for themselves. John turns from the Guardians, removes his gloves in order to get more of a connection with the ring and its workings, and flies back to his apartment. Reaching it, he teleports Rose, Ibrahim, Tomar II, and a host of other aliens willing to compromise in, saying that he's brought them here for a reason, that they have plans to make, and a world to build. Over all the episodes, issues of Green Lantern that I've read over the course of the show, these mosaic titles have been the ones that have been the most thought-provoking and really the most heavy to read. Usually the titles aren't as overt in their dealings with such touchy subjects as racism, violence, overpopulation, and whatnot. It's really been interesting reading these and rediscovering how intelligent and topical they actually were. And even though at times they tend to get a bit preachy, it's never over the top and it never seems, well, it never seems they're trying to push an agenda as hard as they are in current comic continuity. Ah, Try and say that ten times fast. This was a nice combination of simple action-themed comic and also interesting, thought-provoking commentary. It was a good run altogether. But speaking of running, let's run... (laughs) <laughs> right into my notes for this issue. We'll go ahead and start with the cover, which depicts a sort of P.O. John Stewart walking away from the central power battery, tossing his ring over his shoulder, dropping his lantern, and saying, I'm out of here. It doesn't happen in the comics, so it's another one of those cases where the cover really kind of deceives you into showing what's going on in the comic book. Plus, we've got the Guardians just hovering around, kind of looking like Orko from Masters of the Universe. Add to that, you've got the obviously yellow buildings on Oa. Again, can't stress that enough. Buildings on Oa, Green Lantern Planet, they're all yellow. And the sort of bland pink sky, it's not a really eye-catching cover. Other than the fact that it's got Jon Stewart quitting the Green Lantern Corps, there's not much on this cover that would entice me into buying this book. Then we've got page one, the opening splash page, and again we get the humans running around trying to cause destruction in their Ford pickup trucks. And one of them is hanging out the window of said pickup truck with a lit bundle of dynamite. (sighs) And sometimes you wonder why humans are considered to be some of the stupidest aliens in the universe. (sighs) Page three, panel one, is old-timer is sort of messing with John and talking with him in his head. John's got his ear cover up, and he's balled up in a, well, in a ball, and he's got the sort of, la, 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 I'm not listening to you, la, 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 la. It's kind of a goofy pose, and the floaty head, you know, the guardian or the old-timer's back there with the whole floaty head type look again. 
it gets even weirder when we get to panel four and there's the caption from the old timer saying, feel it, John, feel the vastness of my memories. And John has this look on his face with, you know, one eye, you know, a bit bigger than the other. Looks like he might have just felt in a way that he probably didn't want to, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Page five, panel four. John's really pretty blasé whenever Rose pleads with him, saying that the planet's going to run red if he doesn't do anything. I mean, I know John is wrapped with guilt over what happened on Sanchi and all the things that he's perceived to have done wrong, but letting people die, innocent people die, simply because he feels that this is atonement for his sins, really isn't working. Then on page 6, panel 2, as the peaceful humans are trying to plead with John to get him to do something, John misinterprets what he's what they're saying into that they want to basically recreate something akin to what he called the Holy City. Now, this isn't something that I knew about, <clears throat> so when I don't know something about something, what do I do? Check Wikipedia, and it appears that the Holy City was this town built in, oh, the early 20th century by a guy, oddly enough, no Star Trek relation, named William E. Riker, and it was a town that basically promoted a segregationist-type ideal, whereas, as John says in the comic, people would live by God's plan, the whites would lead, the Jews would handle money, the blacks would do manual labor. I think John is kind of stretching to belittle the ideas that the peaceful people are trying to come up with. It really doesn't make any sense that he would think that these people's ideas are in any way akin to what this nut job, who was actually accused of supporting Hitler during the Second World War, wanted to do. Page 8, panel 4, we get some creative cursing from the humans as they're saying friggin' monsters, friggin' monsters, as they're running through the towns, and they're getting into the towns where the polyhedral chasing lot aliens are and starting to blow them away. And then in the next panel, this is, well, this is one of the more uncomfortable shots in the entire comic. We get a shotgun blast blowing away one of the aliens and it just shattering. And the little alien biad is yelling in his alien language, which is, of course, bracketed, male parent, male parent. So apparently what we got was the humans blowing away a father right in front of their child. Now, granted, these are aliens, and they're weird aliens. They're crystalline beings, so you're really not getting a connection to it. But if you think about it, in a comic book, we just saw someone's father get blown away, and the child stand there and watch it. It's a pretty unnerving scene, and I guess kind of, well, for lack of a better term, groundbreaking for the for the comic. I just wonder if this would have gotten by editorial if it were an actual humanoid being that got killed and the humanoid child was standing beside it screaming it for their parents. Pretty dark stuff. Of course, then in page 9, panel 2, we get Chaselon coming in to rescue his, basically his brethren, and he says that he wants to kill the humans. Now, I'm wondering, in current continuity... 
can they do that? Or is that just a plot device that's been developed in recent comic continuity? I know in the Green Lantern Corps, the Green Lantern series, well, not modern day, but prior to the whole New 52 revamp, the Green Lanterns couldn't use their rings to kill until, you know, the Guardians allowed them to do that with the Sinestro Corps War. So I'm wondering if Chase Lun, at this period of time, would actually be able to kill another living being. It's an interesting idea. Perhaps the guys at Green Lantern's Light will come across something like that and let us all know about it. Then, just a minor nitpick, page 10, panel 2, we get Hal firing a ring beam to bring up some Earth to separate two aliens, and the beam's yellow, it's not colored green, so just a little miscoloring error. You know, it might be something to the fact that Matt Hollingsworth wasn't the regular colorer, and he might have just been brought in for what reason, and just actually overlooked it. So, minor nitpick there. And then on the same page, panel 5, we see how using his beam in sort of a wide band to actually put all the aliens and humans to sleep. And It's a thing we've seen before in the Green Lantern mythos, them using it to manipulate people's minds and knock them out. But I'm wondering, you know, why he didn't, why John didn't try to do this prior to this. Maybe John just wasn't trained well enough to do it and didn't really know about it. So, there you have it. Page 11, you get the idea that John has been living in the shadow of Hal probably even more than Guy. John really hasn't come out on his own. He's always looked on, been looked on as the second-rate Green Lantern, maybe even the third-rate one after Guy. And this is the point in the story where he finally realizes that he has to be his own man. It's a good bunch of dialogue, and I'd read it to you, but I'd suggest you go out and get the book and read it yourself. Page 13, panel 1. As Hal is caught up with John and is trying to reason with him, he sounds like he's tiptoeing around it. You know, he sounds like he's trying to approach things and say that you're not really bat guano crazy, but he seems to be kind of condescending, which I think John should definitely take as, well, Hal being condescending. Of course, the same page on panels 4 and 5, when John basically tells Hal that you're either going to help me or you're going to get the hell off my planet. The first panel is of Hal just looking completely shocked, like he doesn't know what to say, and then the next panel is Hal kind of giving him the smile, and knowing that John's coming to his own and he's resolutely going to take charge of the situation. Page 16, panel 3. It's really nice that they've got editor's notes, because I miss that in current content comics, the little notes that the editors would put at the bottom saying, if you want more information about what's going on, you can find it in this issue. But can you really have an editor's note for an issue that's going to be in the future? I mean, this editor's note tells, you know, that the reason the science cells are empty is going to be revealed in the next issue. So that's just kind of weird, I guess. Page 17, panel 1. This is a bit weird. Now, it looks like a javelin, but it could obviously be misconstrued for a spear that John threw at Moses as he was trapped inside the science cell. Yes, it looked like John chucked a spear. (sighs) 
I'm not certain if that's what you're supposed to take from that, but the connotation isn't exactly subtle. Then on the page, on the same page, panel six, we get John and Hal going into Rose's farm, and of course, John's the one going up to Rose, so looks like poor old Hal's gonna get cock-blocked by John. I mean, he doesn't even get a second glance from Rose as he lands, so... Of course, this leads into page 18, panel 7, where Hal actually does go up to Rose, and he says hello, and Rose just kind of gives him a dismissive look, like, oh, you're here. (sighs) Don't you know it, Hal? When they go black, they never go back. Oh, jeez, I'm so embarrassed that I'm actually going to put that in the podcast. Such a horrible person. Uh, page 19, panel 3. The Guardians are really caught off guard at John's accusation. He says that they have enough power to send all these cities back home, and that they're spending more power keeping them here. And it's a really neat look on the face of the Guardians, as they're shocked that John came up with this idea. They thought that most of the Greenlanders were just passive and subservient, and John's calling him out on something, so it's nice to see that the Guardians are actually getting some of what they give. Then, of course, on page 21, we get the shot of John taking off his gloves, and it's a neat pan- it's a neat series of panels as John removes his gloves and removes his ring, and for a moment you think that what happened on the cover is going to happen, and he's going to quit the core, but basically he's just saying that he needs to remove the gloves so he can get more of a connection with the energy of the ring. And it's it's a nice sentiment. I really like the panels, and there's some good artwork throughout all of it. Then, of course, page 22, we get the shot of all the aliens, including the Shugs, the Red Horde that was basically in a coma in John's apartment, Rose, Ibrahim, and a couple of other aliens. Oh, Tomar's there as well. And John says that we've got a world to build. Hmm. Seems like a setup for a new comic. Odd. But what isn't odd is that's the end of my notes. That was a horrible segue. That is, however, the end of my notes, but it's not the end of this show yet. We've still got to go take a look at the ads for this comic. So, starting with the front inside cover, we get a neat little sort of, well, map of a hillside town, and it's for the show Earring Indiana, which was a kid's show that aired on NBC that was akin to the sort of, oh, Goosebumps-type show. From what I recall, it was a kind of Tales from the Crypt-type show, except this time around it wasn't hosted by, you know, John Kassir as the creepy Crypt Keeper, but it did have those that element of sort of supernatural storytelling. Kind of, I guess, a blend of Tales from the Crypt and Amazing Stories. Unfortunately, I never watched the show, but I know it ran for about a season or so, and then it uh, aired on Nick at Night after its cancellation. Then a few more pages in, we get Think Fast. Come on, faster, because here comes Sonic the Hedgehog. And I guess this is the point in time where the 16-bit gaming systems are starting to come into play. I guess the first one was the Sega Genesis with its Sonic the Hedgehog game, and soon after that would be coming the Super Nintendo system, and the gaming console wars would be going on from there. 
Sadly, Sega's not around now, but I remember having Sonic the Hedgehog, and it was a blast to play. Definitely a radical different side-scroller than Super Mario Brothers, with really amazing graphics, great sound, and just a lot of fun to play. It kind of got watered down over the years, but recently it's made a big comeback. My daughter has the Sonic Generations game that she plays on the PC every once in a while, and it looks like it's kind of recaptured the whole idea of the original Sonic game, rather than these Sonic Adventure type things. So, it was a groundbreaking game, to say the least. Then on the page after that, we get Not the Same Old Thing, and no, it's not a promotion for the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. No, it's a promotion for the Adams Family, and you've got a gray background with a sort of black and white tile floor, and you've got Thing standing on the floor. And if you remember, or if you saw this film, Thing actually was a bit more active, or a bit more important part of this film, rather than just a hand that came out of the box and did little hands gestures. In this film, Thing was a disembodied hand that could walk around everywhere, and it was really a fun film. Angelica Houston and Raul Julia were pitch perfect in their play and their portrayal of Morticia and Gomez Adams and Christopher Lloyd was just awesome as Fester. Plus it did have the addition of oh a little certain actress named Christina Ricci to keep the uh, younger males kind of interested in the movie as well. She was fun in the movie. Definitely a movie that if you haven't seen definitely go out and find it. Good movie to watch. Then later on in the book, they get a advertisement for the VHS version of Home Alone, which, if you buy it, you get a copy of a poster, which shows the layout in a sort of animated form of the house and the traps that Kevin put down the house. Home Alone was a great movie as well, and it's kind of neat to see the advent of video being promoted in comic books. It really wasn't until, well the Tim Burton Batman film, that owning video cassettes actually became a viable thing. Back when... Well, back when I was a lad. Back when I was a lad. <laughs> Trying to ape Andy Layla there. Back when I was a kid, owning videotapes was a pricey thing to do. I mean, you could go to a ton of stores and rent them, but videotapes actually cost around 70 to $80 if you actually wanted to buy one. So it wasn't until the advent of Batman and the mass marking of that that you could actually buy videotapes for your own collection for relatively cheap prices. So it's kind of neat to see that development come along. Next page, we get a schedule for September and October for the Great Eastern Conventions, including stuff in Paramus, New Jersey, Indianapolis, Indiana, Springfield, New Jersey, and Wayne, New Jersey. Ooh, hotbeds. Then later on, we get a comic book pricing guide for Twin City Comics. And below that, we get a really muscular, I'm going to make the assumption it's a John Bogdanov image of Superman, saying, Superman is there every week. Where are you? And they're talking about the publishing of Superman, the Man of Steel, Superman, Adventures of Superman, and Action Comics. So, if you don't know about these comics... Why don't you? Because you should be listening to From Crisis to Crisis as well and finding out about these comics. 
next page, we get the Dungeons and Dragons ad again, and that's for the Dungeons and Dragons setup that's kind of a board game slash risk game type setup. I think we talked about it last issue. Issue sewed. I'll get that eventually. Then, of course, we get the HodgePodge page, and nothing really new there, except there is one ad for getting a free live chameleon. So I guess, you know, you send three seventy-five plus... 75 cents posted in handling for food for the chameleon, and they will send you a chameleon-mated pair. I don't know about ordering live animals out of the backs of comic books, but there you have it. Then the next page, you get the ads for the Impact comics and their covers for, I guess, this issue, for this month's issues. And finally, on the back page, you get Smash TV, which... I'm pretty certain we covered last issue. It's a sort of Robotron-type game where you basically stand around in an arena and shoot up people, and if you shoot up and collect enough stuff, you can win in the game of VCR. So, there it is. But, thankfully, even though we had some cool ads in this comic, we get the coolest one on the last outside cover. Yes, it's another Three Musketeers adventure, Number six in, again, a series of God knows how many. And here goes the dramatic reading. Now, to set it up, it's a bunch of excavators, you know, digging for dinosaur bones, and it looks right underneath their... looks like they're digging right underneath Devil's Mountain. And the caption says, Below the Dakota Badlands, paleontologists brush off what looks like... And one of them says, The biggest Tyrannosaurus Rex find! Ever, the other paleontologist says. Any sign of a food source? And we cut to the next panel, and we've got basically Jimmy Connors. Yes, Jimmy Connors, tennis player with a tennis headband, the horrible '70s glasses, and the horrible '70s mustache, saying, "We'll dynamite that other mountainside and see." And as the overly eager dynamite carrying technician begins to push down on the plunger and yells, I've set the charge. We see in the next panel him pushing it down, a giant explosion going boom. Then on the final panel, we have the one paleontologist saying, this proves my theory. He wasn't just big. He was big on chocolate and underneath the skeleton, well actually above the skeleton of the dinosaur, which amazingly enough they didn't blow up when they blew up essentially the top of this mountain. Above the dinosaur is an enormous ancient alien sized Three Musketeers bar. And of course we get the caption, where will Three Musketeers turn up next? And of course it is big on chocolate. So I guess the ancient aliens not only like screwing around with humans, but they love to screw around with the dinosaurs as well, embedding giant bars of chocolate in the sides of mountains. Damn those ancient aliens. But that finishes things up for me for this week. I'd like to tell you that if you guys would like to see this comic in a reprint form, again, good luck. Sadly, like most of the comics from this era, these comics have not been reprinted, but I'm pretty certain you can find them at your local comic book shop on the cheap. Definitely go and pick them up and check them out. And also, I'd like you to check out the podcast The Lantern Cast. 
If you're wanting to know more about Jon Stewart and what happened after the Mosaic storyline, they've got podcasts covering the entire Mosaic story arc. I think it was an 18-issue series, and like what I'm doing here, they've got that covered. So go check out the Landroncast if you want to know more about Jon Stewart. But if you want to know more about Guy Gardner, come back next week as we'll be covering a one-shot issue of Guy Gardner and what's going on in the breakdown story in the JLI books. So, we'll see you next Friday. Until then, have a good week, and we'll catch you later. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ninkable. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted their respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm in no way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast. And if you're feeling friendly, leave me a review at iTunes, and I'll read it on the air. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare enough time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Take This Job and Shove It by Johnny Paycheck. If you'd like to pick up this song, you can go download it from iTunes, or better yet, go to the website twotruefreaks.lipson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go to the Amazon.com website and download the song, purchase the song, or even better, purchase the Robert Hayes movie of the same name. You'll be helping out the best podcast on the internet, that stars two true freaks.